It's our last look at the book of Luke, and I'm going to start with stating a widely circulated opinion. Faith is a crutch for weak people. Have you heard this expression? Faith is a crutch for weak people. Has it ever been leveled at you in your life? I want you to think about this question. Faith is a crutch for weak people. Our faith is not something that started by an original God with the truth emanating into the world. It is something you have created yourself, something that has been added to in a legendary fashion over the years to give people hope. Has this, has this ever been leveled at you? Are you somebody of faith? Perhaps you ain't got a faith. Perhaps you have. Perhaps this is something that's come your way. Maybe you've wrestled with it yourself. You would never probably talk about it here. It's not, it's not the circles that you would talk about a question like this in, but maybe in some of your darker, weaker moments when you've switched the TV off just before you go to bed, is this, is this real? Is this faith that I've got a fabrication? Is it something that has come to us over the years, been added to and been added to, and, and I find myself here with it now, experiencing it now, and, and needing it now, and not daring to, to, to think about it too much? Or is it an inamiable truth? Does it have its origin in God in something at the start? The question I'm asking is, which way does the story of your faith go? Does it start with God and permeate to you? Or do you find yourself somebody who has created this story for themselves, made it a bit of a legend? Is it a weakness? Is it a vulnerability in us that needs this? Or is it a truth? It's a question that we ask with any story from history, isn't it? When we want to find out whether it's an authentic story, when we want to find out whether it's a true story, we ask the question, is, is this an original truth? Or is it a legend that's grown up out of time and been added to. One of my favorite characters from history is Robin Hood. And I'm using that phrase to be slightly provocative, just to engage you a little bit. One of my favorite historical characters is Robin Hood. I, I, I grew up, and I think I feel very much like I was targeted by ITV, who put on this program called Robin of Sherwood. Do you remember this? Do you remember Robin of Sherwood? How good-looking was Robin of Sherwood? It was just ridiculous. I kind of I kind of got in, I think it was Saturday Night TV, I got in and just grew up with this guy, and I was a bit into footy, but once I'd seen Robin of Sherwood, I was completely changed, and I wanted to be Robin of Sherwood. He just, he was in a gang. When, you, when you're about 10, just to be in a gang, he's cool, but he was in a gang that lived in the woods. How cool is a gang that lived in the woods? And then I clapped eyes on Maid Marian, and even at 10, when you've not formulated all your hormones yet, to know that She's out there, and you can fling bow and arrows at people, and she'll come running towards you. That's an amazing thing. And, and this story of Robin Hood and my perhaps odd infatuation with Robin Hood grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and the story grew. And then we got, do you remember Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? It didn't even matter that he was American, just like really obviously. I'm just American, plain Yorkshire. I'm not even going to try and do the accent. And, and there's never been an ugly Robin Hood, has there? They're all just dashing and awesome and amazing. And I grew up pretty, maybe, maybe there, was, there was a weird outcome to this, but I was pretty heavily influenced by Robin Hood, the story of Robin Hood. And then when I got a bit older, in fact, fairly recently, when I, when I thought I should really look into this, let's see how true this story is. And I read a book by Robert Lacey, he's a historian, and he, he sort of goes through all these legends of British 
history, British stories, I was mortified when I found out the truth about Robin Hood. Robert Hood is the first ever Robin Hood that we read about in about 1100 and some. And, and this hero that I had worshipped was just a guy who robbed some people and then didn't go to court quite a lot. Is, the, is this the kind of people that, you, that we idolize today? People that rob people and then don't go to court? This, this was the truth about Robin Hood, Robert Hood, 1225. According to Robert Lacey, this guy fails to appear in court. And this story, this unlikely legend, grows and grows and grows. He's just an outlaw. And, and we get this name Robin Hood, according to Robert Lacey, just for guys who are thieves. They are Robin Hoods. This story grew and grew for a few hundred years. Robin Hoods, this myth grows and it's added to. It's a nickname for thieves and outlaws. And, and when, you start, when I started to dig around at the story, it was really painful actually because my hero just got destroyed. He got obliterated by truth. It, it, it just seems likely there might have been a few guys hanging around with him, but they probably want Friar Tuck and they probably want anybody else. And there was probably never a maid Marian that he met anyway. And he never came across King John. And it's pretty much certain that they didn't fight against the Scots as they did in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And I was a bit of a broken man when I, when I was faced with the truth about my hero, Robin Hood. The story of Robin Hood isn't one where primary truth pervades all and spreads out and stays and we are met by it. The story of Robin Hood is one that people have created, that peasants have imagined because we needed a story of hope that heavily taxed citizens needing an anti-hero have created, that bards needing a muse have imagined, that romantics needing a love interest have added the character of Maid Marian, that Hollywood needing some revenue, needing another film, have added more and more onto, and we get the guy that we imagine as Robin Hood who sits almost beautifully but falsely in my mind right now. And it's just a fabrication. And when you dig away, when you go on the internet and when you read reliable historians, you find out that Robert Hodd, poor Robert Hodd, probably from South Yorkshire somewhere, just nicked some stuff. Just nicked some stuff and didn't turn up in court one time. And the story, in its origin... Is blown apart. So now, as a 37-year-old man, there's probably a few good reasons why I wouldn't run about with a bow and arrow. But one of them, one of them is that my hero is fallen to bits. I've dug around and I've explored, and it's not a truth. He's not a gallant moral crusader. We find that that lined up with that he robbed from the rich to give to the poor. I love I loved this idea that you can legitimize theft. You know, Robin Hood does that. It's, no, it's okay, I'm giving to the poor. This was a line that was added about 400 years after the original Robin Hood. It's just a myth that grew up. And I got to the point as I read Robert Lacey's history that I thought, I don't want to read any more about this. I want to keep this myth. I want to keep this idea that this guy, this awesome Yorkshireman, even with an American accent, might still somehow exist. That this love he had with Maid Marian might still exist. And I kind of stopped I kind of shut the book. I thought, I don't want that part of the myth to be exposed. Robin Hood, probably, there's some truth out there, but he pretty much just exists because we need him. That's why we've got Robin Hood. The resurrection story. I want us to ask these historical questions. I want us to be brave I think Luke asks us to be brave. I think he writes a grown-up account. 
Where does, what is the story of the resurrection? How do is, does it affect us? Is it a story that we have fabricated over time, adding layers and layers and deeper and deeper meaning till we've got this character that we've created that we need? Or is it the case that this is the truth? I think there's a real danger. I think there's been a danger for me. So I'm guessing there's a danger for you that we look at the story of the resurrection and we have it in our minds as a legend. We almost, we, we, we kind of know about it. We know that it's out there. We kind of love that it exists. We're familiar with it. We're really familiar with it. But we almost don't scratch around at it in case it falls apart in our hands. And the reality of the resurrection, knowing the resurrection, experiencing the resurrection, wrestling with it and coming away with certainty about it is not the reality for us. It stays as a legend. It stays as something that's just safely at arm's length that we don't wrestle with. Luke asks us, I think, even if we're getting on in years in our faith, even if we've read the story of the resurrection a million times, he says, I want you to be certain about this. Remember, that's the topic, that's the series, that's the whole point. Luke's been saying, I want you to be certain about this. I want you to know this story. I want this to affect you in a real way. I don't want you to hold it at arm's length. I don't want you to kind of have a vague understanding of it. I want you to explore it, to scratch around at it, to dig around at it, and to see that it's true and to be changed by it. So I wonder if we could just pop the text up. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do that for about 10 minutes. We're going to scratch around at it. We're going to dig around at this story of the resurrection. We're going to be challenged by it. Hopefully we're going to find out that it's true. Read with, read with me, will you? Luke 24, first couple of verses. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright... The women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the, it's brilliant line, awesome line, takeaway line, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. I want us to think for a second about the amount of times these people lived with Jesus, some for three years, some maybe for a little bit more, and Jesus said over and over again, what was going to happen? I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to be hung on a cross and then I'm going to be resurrected. Jesus told them these promises, and they experienced miracle after miracle with him. They saw incredible teaching. They saw people's lives change around. And this was just another promise in the long line. And yet when it comes to the crunch, after three days, how do we find these women? How do we find Luke telling us this story? What are they doing? On what should be, and we think it's a song, isn't it? The greatest day in history. On what should be the greatest day in history, we've got these women going towards the tomb, having prepared spices. I don't know how long, I don't know exactly what's going on here. Maybe if I'd have been a, more prepped, I would have read over and over what was, exactly what was going on. But they were, they were probably spending, I don't know, half the day, the day preparing these spices. They were coming expecting to find a dead body. Jesus has told them that I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. The first instance that we have of Luke telling us about anybody understanding the resurrection, we've got very oddly... Doubt. Lucas spent 23 chapters trying to remind us 
that we're going to need to be certain about this. And I was a bit shocked as I studied this passage this week, and I found out that everybody we meet in chapter 24 has doubts. Everybody we meet in chapter 24 has doubts initially. It's an incredible picture, I think, that we get. The empty tomb. The risen Lord. The risen Savior. As he promised, I guess, but these women make their way there expecting a wake. They come looking for death. I think it's a real challenge to us as we live out our Christian lives. When we consider for a second the amount of promises that God has made to us the evidence that we've already seen of him in our own lives, the journey that we've been on with him, and the promises that lie in store, eternal life, hope, change, transformation, freedom, just amazing stuff. And yet, sometimes, people look at us and think, are these guys going to awake? They've got all these promises in Christ, and yet their heads are just buried in the troubles of life. I want us just to be... And we've been amazed before. I'm sure in your lives you've been amazed before. I want us to be re-amazed. That's definitely not a word. But re-amazed at the story of the empty tomb and the hope that it brings to us. The fact that there was nobody there. But this trail of doubt that Luke reports, it's an odd trail of doubt, isn't it? 23 chapters of certainty. We get to chapter 24 and it is doubt that we are faced with. The women doubt and then we move on to the story of the disciples The women go back. This is how the story pans out. The women find nobody there. They rush back to the disciples. They knock on the disciples' door. And what do they say? Look what the disciples say. The disciples say, this is, and this is like a massive insult. Think about what these guys have been through with Jesus. And the women report the story as Jesus said it would happen. And the disciples go, this is nonsense. This is a ridiculous idea. Jesus resurrected. This is nonsense. This is a weird story for me to report as Luke reports it. But the first skeptics, the first skeptics of the resurrection, who were they? The disciples. The disciples doubted. And then you can follow the trail through with Peter. Peter gets to the tomb and he's still scratching his head. <laughs> Bless him. And we love Peter. I love Peter. My favorite character in the, in the New Testament. Awesome. I relate to him more than anybody else. But with all that Jesus has said, he gets to the empty tomb and he's still going, right, what does this mean? What does this mean? And we're going to ask ourselves the historical question. Is this a story that is born out of gospel truth, to use an old brethren expression, or is this something that we have fabricated? Is it something that we have made up? Which does it sound like to you? If you were going to recreate the story of the resurrection in order to get people to believe, where would you start? Would you report it like this? Would you report it? It was different times. The women in these times... The women were the first people to report about the resurrection. If you were going to fabricate a story about the resurrection, you wouldn't use women in the first century. Women were on, it's horrific when you look back at some of the story of of how women were treated in these times, they were on a different rung than they are now, shall we say that? They were down there in these times. their, Their witness wouldn't stand testimony in a court of law. They wouldn't be heard in a court of law. So if you were going to fabricate a story about the resurrection, you wouldn't start with women, nor would you start with the story of doubtful disciples. Peter, bless him, trying to figure out what's going on. There's there's two ways to look at this. This is either a legend that Luke is creating, or this is the truth as Luke sees it. And even though it doesn't sound like a strong message, even though it wouldn't be what you'd want to make up, it's just the truth. 
And I'm just going to leave it there in the same way that Luke does for you to think about that. The next part of the story that we come along to, that we cause to dwell on, is the empty tomb. There was so much furore, furora, furora about the empty tomb. There was so much to be said about the tomb. There was a lot going on. There was a lot of debate. And there's this, there's this converge between the Jews and the Romans. And there's this idea that the Jews were just so desperate to keep Jesus dead, for him to be seen to be dead, that they got a Roman guard to stand guard at the tomb. So in terms of thinking about the empty tomb, the odds are stacked. They are stacked heavily against Jesus getting out. The stone is rolled there. The Roman guards, Roman guards have got a reputation to defend. They, they, they don't want this body to go missing. They are keen for this body to stay where it is. There's, there's this backstory that the Jews are trying to, uh, the prof, profligating that the disciples might come and try and steal the body. The Romans don't want that to happen. The Jewish leaders don't want that to happen. The odds are heavily weighted, heavily weighted, if you were a betting man, on that body staying in that tomb. The stone's there. The Romans are there. The Jews are everywhere. And yet, there is all this talk. There is all this story. There is all this drama. But there is one inamiable truth, one historical truth in this brilliant story. All this incentive to keep the tomb shut, to keep the body in the tomb, to keep Jesus dead. If Jesus is dead, it kills the story of Christianity. It keeps the peace for the Romans. And yet, the unable truth is this. There was no body. There was no body in the tomb. And it's a picture that we need to just stop and celebrate. All this force, all this evidence pointing towards the strong likelihood that you should be able to keep a body in the tomb. And yet... Incredibly, emphatically, amazingly, the tomb is empty. I want you to think about, about one thing, um, and it's the way that we preach. I want you to think about the first ever gospel message. If you're a Bible scholar, I wrestle with it. Whereabouts would the first ever gospel message be? Start of Acts, I think. There might be a sooner one, but that's, that's where we're headed. The way we preach the gospel now, the way that we teach now, you're taught to contextualize. You're taught to build a bridge between the first century and now. And there's, there's all sorts of, you're taught to use anecdotes well, probably better than Robin Hood, but we'll get there in a second. And there's all sorts of stuff that you're taught. And if you go back maybe 50 years, the preacher might look a little bit sterner. And he, he might be talk about hell more. Still a real place, but he might talk about it more. If you go back even further still, people will be saying, oh, God's angry with your sin. God's angry with this. And they would talk about God's anger. Go back even further, go back a few thousand, a thousand years and you've got guys in robes speaking in Latin. The journey of the preacher has changed. But listen to the first gospel message. What was the first gospel message? It almost makes me want to go back there. It's so simple. It's so simple. We're going to read it together in Acts. It's very simple. It's just basically, there's nobody in the tomb. It's a shorter sermon. It would have been done in five minutes over here now. Let's read it together, Acts chapter 2. And uh, just listen along to this. This is Peter's sermon. This is straight after the furor of Jesus' death and resurrection. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. And you can almost imagine Peter going, yep, the, the guy that you know as David, the hero that you know as David, the messianic figure that you know as David, he's dead. And if you want to find out what it looks like, if you go over in that direction, you can see it. Sermon carries on. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath, 
that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, and his body did not see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. This is the, and when we think about legends growing, when we think about the, the chance that this story has been added to and changed, when we see what Peter does here, Peter stands on the resurrection confidently, and he talks to the people, he addresses them like this, he says, you know what we've all seen. You know that we, what we've all seen. We've all seen this. We all know about this empty tomb. He includes this whole big audience in it, and he says, if you want to know about the power of the resurrection, head over there, go over that direction, and knock on the door of the tomb, and you'll see that there is no body. This is not a legend that has been added to. Luke says this is safe, this is true, dig around. Peter, having watched his Lord and Savior in the most painful, excruciating way ever die on a cross, wanders back into the city square in Jerusalem and preaches the same message. What on earth would bring you to do this, having seen what had happened to Jesus, if it wasn't true? And in an incredible way, and maybe you've seen films like Ben-Hur and Spartacus and other films like that and read historical accounts about the way in which Christians were persecuted in the first century. Horrifically, there's no reason at all for the church to grow in the first century other than the fact that nobody could find a body and the story is true. And you ask yourself the historical question again, is this, is this story something that I've fabricated or is the story of the resurrection true? Then Luke gives us this parting picture. And uh, it's been 24 chapters in Luke. And it's, it's this beautiful story at the end. It's a great story. The story of the two on the road to Emmaus. But I want to challenge, I want to challenge us to think that maybe that's not the best little subheading we could give to this passage. I think I like the idea better that it's the day trip to Emmaus. And I'll explain why in a little while. This beautiful story, two of Jesus' disciples, Cleopas, and I don't think we know the name of, of the other one, and they're, they're leaving Jerusalem. And uh, you can tell a lot, I think, about somebody by the way that they walk, can't you? At least you can by me. When, when you've got somewhere to be, you've got a certain style of walk. And if you read, I don't know if you can skip on if we're in the right part of the text, I think we are. If you can see the way that these two disciples walk, this is a, this is a life reassessing walk. This is not a hurried walk. This is two disciples who've lived their whole life or lived three years of their life with Jesus and now Jesus is gone and they're talking to each other and saying, right, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do with our lives now? And they're, and they're heading, and this is crucial, I think, they're heading away from the heart of the battle. I'm not sure they've thought massively about Emmaus and what they're going to do when they get there, but it just kind of sounds to me like they're just, they're just exiting. They're just saying, right, we're going away. Time out. That is crazy back there. We're not sure what we're going to do next, but we're working, working through it. And they're working through some issues. They're wondering about some stuff. They're wondering about the resurrection. Is it true? Have we made this up? What has been going on for the last three years if Jesus is dead now? What did all that mean? They're going away from Jerusalem. And I think this is crucial to Luke's story with doubt. They're going away from the heart of the battle with doubt. And then what happens? It's beautiful. It's amazing. Jesus comes alongside. And if, if I was Jesus, if this, was, if this was my story, I'd have been raging mad. 
wouldn't you, with, these two, with, with the disciples? He, said, he could have said to them, look, we've been talking about this. I've told you what was going to happen, told you what it was going to look like, and you all ran away. You know the story of the disciples. Come the time of the cross, all the disciples were scared to death. Maybe we can understand that. And Jesus, Jesus finds these two disciples wandering away from the heart of the battle. He's got every reason to be angry with them. And what does he do? He does one thing. He's very clear about one thing. And this is that verse. I'm trying to look for it up. I've written down the right page in my notes. Verse 27. And by magic, the text will flick through. Verse 27. He says, one thing I want you to know. I am the origin of this story. This story starts with me. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he began to tell them all the things that had to happen concerning him. He says, this story, not just this walk, not just these last 33 years, but this story, and he could point to the whole universe, this is all about me. I am the very beginning of this story. And they go on, and they end up having what must have been a beautiful meal. Jesus breaks bread, and as he breaks the bread, they realize that this is the resurrected Jesus. And then there's this brilliant line. They left Jerusalem with doubt. And the very second that they get that this is the resurrected Christ, they turn around and they walk back. And I've always read this story. I've read this story lots of years, and I've always thought it was the next day. Maybe it was the next day. I don't know. But it looks, as I read this here, I'm like, this was at night. This happened at night. And these two guys turn around straight away and head back to Jerusalem with certainty. And Luke leaves us with this really beautiful picture. They're left with doubt. They get the resurrection. They get that it's all about Jesus. They get that it's the beginning. And they head back. Head back to what? Head back to seeing the the cross. Head back to seeing Jesus on the cross. Head back to death and torture. And yet, they don't walk back miserably downcast and confused. They walk back just fearlessly right into the heart of the battle. And as I read this, and as I considered the resurrection, I thought, now which way am I heading? Which part of this journey do I have most affinity with? Which, which is most familiar to me? Is it a myth and a legend? Am I working it out? Or do by the actions of my life, am I heading right back to the battle? I guess I just mulled it over and I thought about it. There are times, some honest reflection... When my neighbors ask me about my faith, and I'm terrified. I'm an assistant pastor, and this stuff is scary stuff. There are times when I bemoan the fact that as a Christian, you've got to help others. I'm, I'm miserable about it. That it, it. Sometimes it's hard stuff to do. Sometimes I'm completely overwhelmed by the job that we've got as Christians to go and spread this message. I think, how on earth is God going to do that? And then I wonder to myself, have I, have I got this? Have I understood this message of the resurrection? I want you to be challenged by what the resurrection does to people that really get it. They walk away with doubt. When they really get it, it almost doesn't matter what's coming up. Because it's true, they go running back into the fight. Have you fully grasped this message? Because to keep it at arm's length to have it somewhere rumbling about in your mind, to have it as something that's a nice, warm, cozy thought is almost 
to miss its use completely. But if you can be certain that this is what happened, it is to know the power of God in your life. When Luke writes about the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, it's not just a legend with layers of added fantasy. It's not a fabrication to give people power. It's not a crutch to give weak people hope. It's not a platform to give writers kudos. It's not a construct to legitimize the disciples' life. It is a story of the original beginning. It is a story of absolute truth. It is an irresistible truth that has its heart in Jesus Christ and permeates the rest of the world and will continue to permeate the rest of the world until Jesus decides that's enough. Luke records this story for us so we will not live doubtful, downcast lives, but so we can investigate the eyewitness account of Jesus Christ and come away certain.